0: Prayer. So let's uh, let's open our Bibles, if you would, to Colossians chapter one. We're going to look at uh, chapter one, verses twenty four through twenty nine. And just a, a word of, of what we're we're doing. We finished our series on the Psalms, and we decided not to uh, begin another uh, series until until March, basically. And so for January and February. Wallace and I get to pick what we, what we want to preach to you. So this is what I picked for this morning from, uh, from Colossians 1. This was part of the passage that I worked on for the, the D-Men project, and so I wanted to uh, share a little bit of that with you this morning. So if you're able, let's stand together as we read from God's Word from Colossians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Pay careful attention, this is God's word. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister, according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ." For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, Please be seated and let's pray and ask the Lord's help this morning. Father, this is your word. Your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth? We pray that your spirit, who inspired Paul as he wrote these words to the Colossian church that that same spirit uh, would illumine our hearts and our minds, give us understanding, give us insight, help us to believe these words, to receive them with faith and love, to lay them up in our hearts and to practice them in our lives. Help us to see Jesus and to grow more and more like him. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, Some of you will know that uh, as you're raising children, you take them uh, for their annual checkup at the pediatrician. One of the things that's always interested me is that pediatricians are able at a pretty early stage, it seems to me, uh, to say with some, some measure of accuracy how tall a child will be even at a young age. They can kind of look at the statistics, see where they are on the scale, and maybe look at mom and dad and say, sure, your two-year-old son is going to be six feet tall when he's fully grown. I don't know. I'm sure there's a formula for all that. I'm not sure how that works. But there's this expectation of growth. There's an expectation of maturity. And as children continue to grow and go to the doctor and go to these well checkups, that's some of what the Physicians are looking for uh, signs of growth, signs of development, signs of maturity. Uh, And and, and in those terms, there's kind of an expected goal that they will meet in terms of height, in terms of other things. Some animals, you probably know this, uh, some reptiles, amphibians, uh, fish, have what's called indeterminate growth. In other words, they, they can grow to a certain extent. They can grow uh, as long as they are living. They keep growing, limited mainly by their environment, by what they can eat, and by the, the size of the, the place in which they live. So, for example, maybe some of you had goldfish growing up in a little bowl, and the goldfish stays small because the bowl is small. But you put a goldfish in a pond where there's more space, perhaps more food or whatever, and, and the goldfish grows and grows and grows and continues to get Larger and larger than he would within the fishbowl. You expect growth, and then growth, in some ways, is determined by the environment in which they live. What about spiritually speaking? How are? What should we expect in terms of spiritual growth and maturity? What should we be striving for? What does the Bible call us to uh, when we think about growing? in Christ, growing in spiritual maturity? And how does the environment in which we live often hinder that and make it challenging and oftentimes difficult for us? You are called, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are called to grow. You are called to grow into maturity, grow into conformity to Christ. And there are often things that stand in the way of that. When Paul uh, wrote this letter to the Colossian church, a large part of his burden was helping them to grow in spiritual maturity. They were faced with some challenges, some some hindrances to their growth. We don't know all the details of of why Paul wrote this letter. We only have his side of the correspondence. Uh, But as far as we can tell, there was some type of false teaching that was beginning to permeate the Colossian church. It was a deficient view of Jesus. Whatever these false teachers were saying, they were making claims, making statements about Jesus that that diminished who he really is. Uh, for them, he was he was not fully God. Perhaps he was some st- step below God and above humans, but he wasn't fully divine, maybe a little bit In between, if you will. And as they were teaching a deficient view of Jesus, along with this came a deficient view of the gospel. You can think about how that works itself out. If Jesus is somehow less than God, then he is not a fully sufficient Savior, and and you need to contribute something, therefore, to his work. And so that's what they were teaching. Yes, you must trust Jesus, But you must also do these other things. They were claiming that Jesus was not enough, that trusting in Christ alone was not enough for salvation, that you had to do things like abstain from marriage or abstain from certain foods and adopt a certain diet and regulations and observe certain feasts and festivals and and Jewish practices that were common under the old covenant. They were presenting a deficient view of Jesus, which led to a deficient view of the gospel in which Jesus was not enough, and you had to add to what Christ had already accomplished. And as a result of this, they were all being stunted in their growth in Christ. Because if you have a false view of Jesus and a deficient view of the gospel, you're not going to mature spiritually because you're not taking advantage of all that God has done for us In Jesus. And so Paul writes this letter to confront that, to correct that, and to call them to maturity. So if I can kind of give a little bit of big picture of of the book of Colossians, the letter to the Colossians, Paul emphasizes all throughout this letter the supremacy of Jesus Christ. 18 times, in one way or another, he talks about being in Christ, being with Christ, Christ being in us. Our being in him. Jesus, Paul says, is enough. He is sufficient. He is all that we need. All the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. Jesus is as fully God as the Father is God. There's nothing deficient or lacking in Christ and who he is or what he has done. And so he corrects their false view of Jesus. And then he corrects their diminished view of the gospel and reminds them that not only is Jesus enough, but if you are in him, you have all that you need because all that Christ has done has counted for you if you are united to Jesus through faith. And then in that, he calls them to maturity in the way that they think, in their affections, what they love, and in their lives as they display the fruit of God's Spirit in their own lives. So Paul responds to this by saying Jesus is enough, by presenting the true Christ and the true gospel and calling them to maturity. In this passage that we've looked at, uh, Paul highlights his own ministry as a way of getting at this point. He reminds them that he was called as a servant of the gospel that his call is, is a stewardship, is something entrusted to him as a servant of Jesus. And that stewardship involves preaching the word, preaching Christ, and helping God's church to grow in spiritual maturity. And so in verse 24, he talks about rejoicing in his sufferings. How many of you rejoice in your sufferings? Maybe sometimes we do because we see God at work in them. Paul suffered beaten for the gospel, imprisoned uh, numerous times, um, stoned almost to death, Paul suffered, and yet he rejoiced in that because he understood his sufferings were part of his calling and ministry to serve the church, and as he describes it, to fill up in his body what was lacking in Christ's afflictions, which doesn't mean there's something missing in Jesus It means that he was able, through his preaching, to bring the good news of what Christ had done in his afflictions to the world. So Paul talks about being a servant of the gospel. He talks about being a steward, suffering for the sake of the gospel and proclaiming the gospel uh, as part of his ministry. And what I'd like to do is, is to focus in on verse 28 as kind of the main message for this morning, where Paul talks about the goal of his ministry, and the means of his ministry. So look with me, if you will, at verse 28. I'll read it, and then we'll kind of unpack uh, two points from it. Paul says, We proclaim him, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Here Paul outlines his goal. Jesus is enough. And Paul, Paul's goal as a minister is to proclaim Jesus. Uh, notice just first Paul's goal at the end of verse 28. His goal in ministry is to present every man complete in Christ. Uh, that word for complete uh, can be translated in a couple of different ways. It can be translated as complete. Or perfect or mature or whole, you can think about it uh, this way. It has the idea of of wholeness of something coming into its intended design. so if you can imagine maybe a a sculptor and he 's got a, a block of wood that he 's sculpting he 's working away at this block of wood, and in his mind. He's got a design, he's got an idea of what the block of wood will look like once he's done. Once the the master craftsman has finished his work of sculpting and shaping this block of wood, it will look like what he has in his mind. And there's a process to that. There's a development. Things are chipped away, things are, are shaped in certain ways, and at the end of it, it looks very different from how it looked at the beginning, as the sculptor completes his design. The Father has in view for you a design, and and that goal of what we ought to look like is maturity in Christ. In in your life, in your words, in your thoughts, in your actions, the Father is shaping us and sculpting us, forming us to look more and more like the Son, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. But unlike the block of wood, we are not passive in this goal. We are not just a block of wood with somebody else working on us all the time. We, we have a role to play. And yet we're not to think that that role is dependent upon our strength. Rather, Paul points out that we need the gospel both for salvation and for maturity, Think about Paul's missionary model as he went from place to place and established churches. What would he do? He would show up, he would gather a group, maybe he'd go to the synagogue first and he would begin to proclaim Jesus to those who had gathered there, Jesus as the fulfillment of the mystery, the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Old Testament, uh, the one who came to rescue God's people, He would preach. The Jews, some might receive him. Others would reject him. Uh, And if Paul stayed in any one place for a period of time, people would gather, and Paul would do what? He would preach. He would preach the gospel. In Corinth, Paul stayed there, we're told, for about 18 months. And he preached there, and he taught there for 18 months, all those who, who gathered to hear him He preached the gospel so that many would hear the good news that Jesus had come, that there was righteousness in Jesus, that he had died for sins and risen again from the dead so that all who believed in him could be forgiven and be welcomed as beloved children of the Father. But we're not to think that Paul spent 18 months only settling on that particular aspect of the gospel. He taught he admonished, he corrected, he encouraged them to live their lives for Jesus. But he never got away from the core message of Christ and him crucified. And so for Paul, the gospel, if you will, is both the door and the pathway to the Christian life. It's it's the way you enter in to life with Christ by trusting, by believing, by receiving the good news of what Christ has done, but you don't somehow leave the good news of Jesus behind in order to grow. The gospel is the same message you need for growth in maturity. And so Paul can say his goal is maturity, and the way he gets there, the way he ministers to those whom he is helping to grow is by proclaiming him, by proclaiming Christ admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. In the gospel, you're given righteousness in Christ, covered with it, counted righteous in Jesus. You don't contribute anything to that. It's all Christ. And in the gospel, you're given a new heart, a new life, new desires so that you begin to love the things that God loves, you begin to repent of sin that you didn't see before. You begin to die to yourself daily and live for the Lord. Day in and day out as you look to Jesus as Savior and Lord. You're given a new life. Sin no longer reigns over you. You, called, you are called to change from the inside out. It's progressive. It takes time. It takes effort. But all of that effort is rooted In the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ, which is why Paul can say that as a means of maturity, of presenting every man, every man, complete in Christ, he proclaims him. Let's talk for a second about maturity. Maturity is both a destination and a journey. Uh, For the Christian, you, you will not be fully mature until you behold Jesus face to face. And yet all along this life as we follow Jesus, we are called to grow, to develop, to progress, just as you would expect a child to progress physically and emotionally and intellectually. We are called to progress, to grow into maturity, even though the final goal is yet to come when we behold Christ face-to-face. So this calls for some patience. You are not yet what you ought to be. You are not yet what you will be by God's grace, and yet you are on the way to that goal because Christ is at work in you, and we are to strive towards that goal of maturity. You need the gospel for salvation and for maturity. If you were to read through the rest of Colossians, you, you might see that part of what Paul's doing in this letter is outlining what spiritual maturity looks like for the believer. Uh, it involves things like putting off sin and putting on holiness as we follow Christ, as we keep our eyes on Him. If you've got problems stealing, he says elsewhere, then you should stop stealing. And instead, start working so that you can earn and give to others, rather than taking, you give generously. If you have problems with the truth and you tend to lie, then you are to put off lying and instead be filled with the truth, speaking the truth in love. Paul calls us to a pattern of seeing our sin, of putting it off, and seeking to live in a way that honors the Lord with all that we are. That is maturity, being conformed to Jesus and his character, his life, and his love. And that happens through the ministry of the gospel. Paul also highlights for us that we need one another for growth. Uh, Christianity is not a Lone Ranger religion. Uh, we we love, we're, we're good Americans, we love rugged individualism, we love pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and getting out there and getting it done on our own and having the strength and the ability to do that. And we tend to uh, view dependence on others as weakness. And Jesus, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Bible, the Lord calls us to depend upon one another and tells us that we are... We are not sufficient in ourselves for what we need to follow Jesus. We have all that we need in Christ, and Christ in his grace has provided the body of Christ, the church, as the place in which we are to grow. We need one another as the means of growing in spiritual maturity. This is not exactly in the passage that we looked at, but it's, it's peppered throughout the New Testament, uh, like seasoning that completes the dish. In Ephesians 4, Paul paints the picture of the church as the body of Christ. He says that Jesus has ascended to heaven, and Jesus has given gifts to his church, uh, including uh, pastors and teachers whose job it is to equip the saints, all of us, to serve one another. And as we serve one another, we build one another up in love. In other words, Jesus' formula for your growth is the people around you, the people who belong to the body of Christ. They are given gifts for your benefit, and you are given gifts for their benefit. And growth, spiritual growth, is meant to happen in that context of loving and serving one another within the body of Christ. The Lord has provided, in other words, for your spiritual needs in part through other people. And it takes humility to be willing to receive that, and it takes love to be willing to give that to one another as a means of spiritual growth. Why do we need each other? We need each other to help uh, see our sin when we grow accustomed to it. Sometimes you don't see the ways that you're struggling, but if you're living in community with other believers, they do, and they can perhaps call you on it, encourage you to follow Jesus and help you see the grace of the gospel when you may not see your need for it. I had a neighbor growing up, lived across the street from me. His father was, um, he wasn't a dentist, but he did something with teeth. I can't remember what he did. Periodontist. Is that a thing? That's what he did. And he dealt with teeth and, and dental hygiene. And so my neighbor and I carpooled to school when we were both in high school. And one year, my neighbor decided I'm not sure if he was doing this against his dad or if it was just a bright idea, but he decided that for his science project, part of his science project would involve him not brushing his teeth for a couple of weeks, which seemed odd to me, but that was his idea, was to see what would happen. I'm not sure what his hypothesis was, but it involved him not brushing his teeth for two weeks. Now, you can imagine, first thing in the morning, getting in the car together, riding 15 minutes to high school. Uh, together, I could feel the effects of his science project uh, pretty strongly with my nose. But what was interesting was he had become accustomed to it. It just didn't bother him anymore uh, that, he, that his breath smelled really bad. Sometimes we we are like that with our sin. We, we become accustomed to it. We, we don't think about what we're doing, what we're saying, how we're how we're thinking about things, and and it takes somebody else loving us to say, hey, man, you stink. What's going on? And, And calling us on it and encouraging us to go to Christ in repentance and in grace to change. We need others to help us see our sin when we grow comfortable with it. We need others to help us see Christ when we can only see our sin. Perhaps you're not accustomed to your sin. You haven't grown comfortable with it. You are weighed down by the burden of it, and you can't see anything past it. You can't see the cross. You can't see the empty tomb. You can't see the grace of God for you in the midst of sin. You you need somebody else who can come alongside you and say, yes, I see your sin too, but I also see your Savior and, and then you get the opportunity, the privilege of proclaiming Christ to your brother, to your sister, to help them see beyond their own sin that there's a Savior who forgives all sin and who promises to renew us from the inside out so that we won't always feel stuck right where we are, like we can't change, and we certainly won't feel condemned when we see Jesus and his cross. We need each other for conviction of sin and to help convince one another that there's grace in Jesus Christ. That is the vision of the body of Christ within the New Testament. It's part of the reason why we try to do cottage Bible studies As a small group way of growing in relationships with one another, of encouraging one another, praying with one another, being involved in one another's lives, knowing what's going on, and and helping one another to follow Jesus well. A large group, our gathering for worship is one way we do that, but it happens differently when you gather in a small group to study the Bible together, to love one another in that setting. We need the gospel. For salvation, for maturity, you need to keep your eyes on Jesus. At the beginning, all throughout, at the end, and through eternity, our eyes need to be fixed upon the Savior. And we need one another, the church, as the context for growth. So, how then should we grow? Well, if we can go back to the children's challenge question, you young Bible scholars learned the story of Jesus walking on the water and Peter boldly stepping out in faith upon the water and walking on the water. But what, was, what happened that changed things for Peter when he started slipping below the water? What, what did he do? Do you remember? What did he see that made him start to sink? You remember? Remember? The wind and the waves. What had he been looking at before that? He'd been looking at Jesus. And he took his eyes off of Jesus and he saw the storm and he began to sink. How do we grow? You keep your eyes on Jesus. And know that even when you look away and you start to sink, it's his hand that grabs you and delivers you. Keep your eyes on Jesus And then three things, just briefly as we close. They all start with I, to help us remember. One way for us to grow is intergenerational discipleship. Older believers coming alongside younger believers, investing in them, viewing it as your task, older, more mature Christians, it's your task to invest in the next generation, to help the next generation see Jesus, to help them follow him, trust him, walk in his ways for all of life. It's your task within the body of Christ to do that for the next generation, intergenerational discipleship. Number two, intentional discipleship. Guarding your own heart, growing in Christ yourself, and then serving others with the word of God. Looking for one another we're looking rather for opportunities to encourage one another, to pray with one another, to challenge one another, to point one another to the cross and the resurrection as our only hope. Intentional discipleship, thinking about it, planning for it. And then finally, I'm not sure if this word works, but I'm going to go with it integral discipleship. Integral discipleship. There needs to be integrity in our discipleship. Part of our challenge. Uh, in, in the world today is kind of a disconnect between what we believe and, and what we do, uh, our faith and our lives. Oftentimes, there's kind of a, a severance between those two, and we compartmentalize things, and that, that hinders our growth. Because as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, uh, you're, you're not meant to be a follower of Christ in one place but you don't really have to do it in another. There's there's supposed to be an integrity in your faith and life that wherever you are, you belong to Jesus. And whatever you're doing, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, we love this verse, do all to the glory of God. You love that verse more than, than, than it sounds like. I know you do. Do all to the Glory of God, do all to the glory of God. There's meant to be integrity in our lives as we follow Christ and help one another follow Christ. I remember in uh, when I was in youth group, a, a new Christian, 16 years old, and I was—I can't remember what was going on. You know, one of these kind of ups and downs you have as a new believer, as as a teenager. Uh, but I was struggling. I was probably straying a little bit. I was a bit full of myself, probably still am. And I, I, was, I was wandering a little bit, and I had a friend in youth group um, who she went to a different school, but we were in the same youth group and and she kind of called me on the carpet and, and confronted me about whatever it was that, that was going on i can 't remember and, and She had a conversation with me i don 't remember any other conversation I ever had with her, but I remember this one, and as she was talking to me about my life. And whatever was going on at the time, uh, she asked me a question. She said, I think I was defending myself. I was defending what I was doing, how I was living. And she asked me this question. She said, well, well, what does Jesus have to do with this part of your life? And I remember my answer very clearly, not much. I, I lacked integrity. I did not think that my life in whatever this particular area was, I did not think that my life in that area uh, had any connection to Jesus, that somehow I was free to, to do as I, as I pleased. And so I gave a foolish answer that Jesus doesn't have anything to do with this part of my life. And, and she very patiently just said, okay. And that was kind of the end of the conversation. But I, it stuck with me because I realized oh, she was right. She was right. Christ has something to say to all of my life. He is Lord of all, and there's no no area of my life that does not belong to him. And part of growing in maturity is the ongoing process of submitting all of life to him in integrity as his followers. Jesus calls us to growth, and that growth happens as we look to Jesus, as we believe the gospel not only for salvation, for coming into the Christian life, but as we believe the gospel, for growth in grace and as we encourage one another in the body of Christ through intergenerational discipleship, intentional discipleship, and discipleship that has integrity to it, all for the glory of Jesus. Would you pray with me, and then we'll have our uh, installation of Officers.